outline. There's an outline on the back of the bulletin for the sermon, Loving Enemies. But God's Word in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these words are counter to everything inside us. Would we want to return evil for evil? We want to only bless those who've blessed us first. And so we ask that now we would see you and you would work in us, that we might live like you, that we might be a picture of you to this world. It's in your Son's name who empowers us. Amen. A common sentiment among people today is that Jesus' core message of love is great. They may not agree with everything in the Bible, but one thing they love, the message of love. Yet, do we really love it? February 6th of this year, Harvard professor, author Brooks, broke at the National Prayer Breakfast. He read these words, and he spoke imploring both sides to love your enemies, and he talked about ways they could do that and how this is important and why we should do this. Right after he finished, another person came up and his first words were, Arthur, I'm not sure I agree with you. And then he went into tear into his political opponents, showing obviously he did not agree at all with what Arthur, Mr. Brooks, had been saying, which sadly is very concerning since Mr. Brooks was just straightly applying Jesus' commands of love your enemies. Well, we can hold up our Bibles, we can proclaim to follow it and love it, but do we really love Jesus' ethic? We sing and write about how wonderful it is. We're told that hate is the biggest problem in society. We've even made laws, hate crimes, because they're worse, because they're hateful, or so we say. Yet our actions show that we don't really love love. Anger, hate, malice. That's the type of language and the tone used on message boards, on online social interactions. Spite and malice for the other seem to characterize how we think about those who don't agree with us. We have a thin veneer of social politeness, but once we get back to our group, whatever that group is, we say harsh and condemning things to the other side. In fact, I wonder if we even understand what Jesus is saying here, because Jesus is not just giving us some abstract code to follow jesus is in essence explaining this explaining this is what god is like 
And so to understand that, we need to understand this passage. And I think here we can understand it in four ways. First, in verses 27 through 28, we see the call, Jesus' call to love. Then, Jesus wants us to understand, what does this really mean? So in verses 29 through 31, he gives us examples of what this love looks like. And yet he knows that people will say they have this when they don't. And so he then goes into cheap imitations of this love in verses 32 through 34. And then he ends giving us motivations to do this because this is not our natural desire. How are we going to be motivated to live this way? We see that in verses 35 through 36. But really to understand this, we have to understand the passage before because Jesus had been giving this upside down way of looking at the world. He said, those who are blessed are those who are poor. Those who are cursed are those who are rich. It's a shocking message. And Jesus went on to say, look, if you're enjoying life now, if everyone loves you, well, you're actually probably like the Old Testament prophets. What is a blessed life is if people hate you because of him. Well, Jesus continues that radical teaching for he now contrasts the hate that people will have for us with four commands to how they should respond to this hate. And first, Jesus tells his followers to love your enemies. Verse 27, love your enemies. On the very outset, Jesus is commanding something that is not natural to us. Let's just admit that we don't like this. We may say we like this, but then go get in your car and have someone run through the stop sign, and you're not going, oh, aren't they wonderful? They're so great. God, would you bless them for running that stop sign and helping me learn patience? No, we get angry. It's not natural to us. Our instinct is to hate those who hate us. Christopher Hitchens was a well-known atheist. He wrote books. His most famous one is God is Not Great. And in one debate, he was arguing with a Christian, and he said this about Jesus' ethic. He said, I'm not going to love my enemies. You go love them if you want. Don't love them on my behalf. I'll get on with killing them, destroying them, erasing them. And you can love them. But the idea that you ought to love them is not a moral idea. It's a wicked idea. And Hitchens, I think, speaks honestly for the way many people think. This is ridiculous. Love your enemies. Again, we can say, oh yeah, this is wonderful. And yet, what do our actions show? This is a type of love that is anything but natural to us. It is a supernatural love and one that is only logical to emulate, to follow if, is if Jesus is who he says who he is and he did what he claimed to do. Because Jesus claims not just to be a good teacher, he claims to be the son of God who came in the flesh. He came, he said, out of love to give his life, to die for the sins of humanity. He came for rebels against him. Romans 5, 8 describes it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It then goes on in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, love for those who hate you is the type of love God has for us. Notice that this call to love our enemies should pull us out of our fearful tendencies to want to retreat, to isolate with people who agree with us and go, we're safe here. And it propels us to go do good to those who hate us. Jesus expands on this in the middle of verse 27 by saying, Second, 
do good to the ones who hate you. Your love in our day has been reduced to a passive willingness not to do harm. You don't harm me, I won't harm you. And yet, Jesus' love is not a passive restraint. It's an active doing. Richard Wormbrand lived this type of love out. He was a pastor in communist Russia. Or sorry, he was a pastor in Romania when communist Russia overtook the country in 1945. But he was going to be faithful to the gospel, so he continued to preach. And so the communists arrested him. And 13 out of the next 18 years, he was in prison. He and other Christians and others who were arrested took beatings, long solitary confinements, meager rations. And yet then, he was eventually purchased his release by Christians outside of Romania, and he was able to write a book for it, Tortured for Christ. And in that book, he talks about how not only would they be tortured, but sometimes the communist leadership would turn against communists in the party, and they would put them in the same prison cells. And sometimes those who had been the torturers were now with the tortured. So how would you treat the man or woman who had tortured you? Well, Wormbrand writes, while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians giving away their last slice of bread and the medicine which could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who is now a fellow prisoner. There could be no more tangible expression of doing good to those who hate you. Jesus goes on, verse 28, 30, he says, bless the ones who curse you. This is not, well, mom said I have to give you a hug. Love you. This is wanting you, saying words of wanting good for you. God is saying, look, show love in word and deed. Now, we got to be clear here. Jesus, in verses 24 through 26, gave warnings of this is a life that will lead to destruction. He called people sinners in verses 32 through 34. I say this because people misinterpret Jesus to say, well, love means we just universally accept everyone. We say everyone's doing fine. Well, Jesus is clearly not doing that. He here calls people sinners. His own actions and words show that that understanding of love is not true. But like Jesus, we must, through loving tears, plead with people if they're going astray from God. We must say this is sin, but do so in a loving way. And so Jesus continues forth in verse 28. He says, pray for the ones who mistreat you or abuse you. And we saw this when we looked at Jesus on the cross. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was praying for the very ones who persecuted him. So Jesus gives them four ways to love and treat their enemies. But he goes on because he wants to give them tangible expressions. What does this actually look like? How do you express this type of love? And we see that in verses 29 through 31, examples of this love. And the first one is verse 29. To the one who strikes you upon the cheek, provide the other also. As we look at these verses, there's kind of two extremes that we often have fallen into in church history. One extreme is to say that these are to be taken literalistically. As we read the Bible, we should read it like any book. 
what it's saying is true. On face value, it's being presented as true facts, and we should read it that way. But we err in literal interpretation if we don't understand metaphors or stories or hyperbole. Here, I think Jesus is somewhat speaking in hyperbole, and I say that because Jesus was actually struck on the cheek. And what did he do? He didn't say, well, here's my other one. He said in John 18, why did you do that? So Jesus is not literally saying every single time you get hit, you have to then go, here's another one you haven't got yet. So what is he saying? Well, we have to understand first that he's not being literal, but he is getting to a very, issue, very deep issue we have, and that is we want revenge. He's talking about Luke 19, 18. He's talking about what Paul will tell us in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus, rather than bearing grudges, being quick to retaliate, hasty to sue, or always asserting our rights, we have to be open to personal harm so we can do good to others. And so we can fall on this side, but then we can swing to the other side and then say, huh, hyperbole, we don't really have to do that. Well, no, Jesus actually means what he's saying. We should be willing to take abuse so we can love other people. Don't wipe away his commands just because it's not intended to be taken literalistically. So there's these two extremes that we must avoid. Well, Jesus' second expression of love is from the one who takes your garments, also do not forbid the tunic. And the context is someone forcefully taking something from you. Those of you who are part of this church may remember about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, Joshua and Naomi Smith came, uh, missionaries, to Mexico. And they told us, this story told my family once, the story about this woman named Maria. She was a Christian and she was going to work. And as she was walking to work, she heard someone running behind and trip and fall, and she went to help them. And when she turned around, she saw not just a person on the ground, but a knife. And realized this man was about to rob her. And so she did what many gospel Christians would do, and that is she helped him up. She opened her purse, gave him 200 pesos, and then told him about how God calls us in Ephesians 4.28 no longer to steal, but to work so that we can be a blessing to others. And the man left. And a week later, Maria heard someone running up behind her again, and this time she turned around, and it was the same man. And he gave her back the 200 pesos, and he said, thank you for what you said. Now, is the point that every time a robber comes, you have to help them? No. Is the point that you can never call 911? No. That's not the point at all. But the point is Maria knew that this man needed something much deeper than her money. He needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needed to be shown love. So again, don't go to either extreme. I'm not saying you can't defend yourself. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But is there something deeper that is guiding us Something about showing God's love to this world. Verse 30, Jesus gives a third example of this love. Give to all who ask of you. Again, literalistically, we might have to break the command in 2 Thessalonians to not give to those who refuse to work. Okay, so what is he saying? Well, he's saying, let's be honest. When someone asks for help, we're more like, eh, how little can I give? Do I have to give again? 
You know, inside we are quicker to come up with excuses than desires to give. We may give, but often it's to ease our conscience rather than to generously give. However, Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. So do you err on the side of being too cautious? Well, I wouldn't want to give them too much. Or do you err on the side of being too generous? You know, it's better to be a little too generous and show a little too much grace than show a little too much judgment. Are you willing to give not just money, but your time? Are you willing only to give once and then check, I'm done? Or what if there's an ongoing need? You're being a loving giver is not just a one-time thing where you can check it off the guilt list. It's a lifestyle that where you see a need and you're able to fulfill it, you do it. Now, we can't fulfill all needs, but we're looking to be the hands and feet of Christ. Fourth, Jesus commands, from the one who takes you, do not demand or ask back again. Jesus is really showing us the all-encompassing nature here. We must be willing to take abuse, to give our clothes, our money, even our goods for his name. And so I have to ask, am I more committed to getting my stuff back than I am for caring for people? Am I more driven by my rights? As Americans, we love our rights. Are we more driven by our rights than love? Are there times that I could give up a right for the sake of the gospel? Now again, it's not all or nothing because sometimes Paul did and sometimes Paul made legal arguments and he appealed to Caesar and he used the laws of the land and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But for Paul and hopefully for us, what drove him in each case was how will the gospel go forward? When he laid down his rights, it was for the gospel. When he took it up, it was for the gospel. Jesus then in verse 31 gives us some famous words sometimes referred to as the golden rule. Just as you wish that men would do to you, you do likewise to them. And Jesus was not the first to say words like these. You can go and read from Greek philosophers, from Stoics, Jewish, even Chinese writers who said similar things. Confucius wrote, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. However, you may have noticed a significant twist in Confucius' words. Confucius were both negative. If you don't want something done, then don't do it to them. It was the passive, I live my life, you live yours, let's just leave each other alone. Jesus says, no, I'm not calling you to passivity. That's not love. I'm calling you to actively do good. If you would want this good thing done to you, well, you should look to how you can do that good thing for others. Not passive acceptance, active hospitality, love. See, love is not merely the absence of hate or doing harm. Love positively seeks the good of others in word, deed, and thought. And Jesus is calling us to a love that extends far beyond what we might deem moral or possible because it's for the good of others and it's not self-serving. The problem is we all, myself included, are so self-focused we're not often even seeing the needs of others around us. We're so busy seeking and pursuing our life's plans, our life's dreams, that we don't notice those around us and see what they're going through. And so Jesus reorients us by saying, 
just as you wish that men would do to you, do you likewise to them. Well, many people think, okay, yes, this is a good message. I like it, message of love. And I'm a fairly loving person. You know, Jesus, Jesus, I agree. Except Jesus then explains, look, there's some cheap imitations of this love in verses 32 through 34. Diamond rings are very expensive, but you can get a cubic zirconia for a much cheaper price. Now, men, we may feel quite impressive that we got something that looks really sharp, but um, if you give that to your fiance, she's not going to be quite as impressed with your thriftiness. Your cheap imitation does not convey what should be conveyed. And Jesus here is showing us three cheap imitations of the supernatural love he calls us to have. And yet these are the loves that we often boast about, but they're not the real thing. And like that cubic zirconia, Jesus is just not impressed. Verse 32, Jesus asks, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? He then says, sinners love those who love them. Even those who have not been made Jesus' disciples love people that love them. That's the most ordinary thing in the world. And yet, when people say, are you loving? That's what we say. Oh, yeah, I love my family. I love my friends. I love the people on my sports team. Well, yeah, anybody can love those people. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's well and good. But I'm calling you to a deeper love than just loving those who love you. So second, Jesus asks, if you do good to those who do good, do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And Jesus is following the same pattern each time. Saying, look, sinners do that. It's no big deal if you do good to those who do good to you. This is merely, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's still a self-focused mentality that to give, you're going to have to give me something back. And Jesus, though, calls us to give even if we get nothing in return. So he goes on in verse 34 and asks, If you lend from whom you hope to receive, what benefit is that to you? Again, Jesus is saying that's what sinners do. If you have good credit, any bank will give you money. It's not that they're a loving bank. They know they're going to get money back from you. There's nothing loving about it. It's a business transaction, not love. And yet sometimes when we give, that's, well, maybe it's getting you to a relational debt, or you know they're going to give it back. But Jesus says we should give with no strings attached. And this is where Jesus' words really challenge us, challenge me. We're quick to say, oh yeah, I'm a loving person. I take care of my family. And Jesus says, well, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, I'm loving. I'm kind to my neighbors. He says, look, you don't understand. That's not what I'm talking about. I've never harmed anyone. Well, that's good, but that's not what I'm talking about. He says, love is not avoiding harming people. It is doing good to those, even who it's unnatural to do good for. And so we have to ask, do I, do we really love Jesus' ethic? Again, I think we love social courtesies. We love, oh, thank you, yes, hello, hi, being socially polite. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. I think very few of us actually love loving our enemies, not even our political enemies. You know, anger and hatred sadly describe the way we think of those who disagree with us politically. There's not just a disagreement about the positions stated, but a hatred for the person who articulated them. A hatred that really should be completely absent 
from Christian engagement in politics. Now, sadly, evangelical Christians are doing little better than others at loving their neighbor in this regard. You know, our church is unashamedly pro-life. From conception to death, we should argue for, put, egg, put arguments forth, and live lives that honor life, because each life is made in God's image. And yet we must also wrestle with Jesus' words. If we are angry with our brother in our heart, we've murdered them. We cannot be pro-life and have anger in our hearts towards others. David French writes, When the Apostle Paul told first century Christians to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, he was speaking to an early church that wasn't enduring tweetings, it was facing beatings. It was facing death from the leaders of an evil regime. Those were the enemies Christians were to love. Hate has no place in pro-life America. None. And embracing or defending hate for the sake of life contradicts the very spirit of the movement. You know, hate is a serious issue that we must wrestle with. And yet, it doesn't always present it in red-faced, veins-bulging, attitudes. Sometimes it's in much more subtle and much more dangerous ways. I mentioned Arthur Brooks at the beginning of the sermon. He spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, and in his talk, he explained that one of the deepest issues we have is contempt. He says contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another, which as Christians we should ever never have. Every person is worthy of respect. Every person is worthy of honor because they're God's image. But Brooks goes on. He tells of Dr. John Gottman. He's, by Brooks' opinion, the leading expert on marital reconciliation. And during his work for many years, Dr. Gottman has studied thousands of married couples. And he argues, and it's, I think, been proven, that within an hour of counseling, he can tell within 94% accuracy if this couple is going to get divorced or not. Well, how can he tell? It's not from the anger the couples express. Anger doesn't predict separation and divorce. The biggest warning signs are indicators of contempt. These include sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and worst of all, eye rolling. These little acts effectively say you are worthless to the one person a spouse should love more than anyone else. It says you want to see if a couple will end up in divorce court? Watch them discuss contentious topics and see if the other partner rolls his or her eyes. Now, that might be slightly overstated, but I think it's getting to something really deep, and that is how do we view the person with whom we disagree? And sadly, it's true that sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and virtual eye rolling are the norm for how we engage with those who disagree with us politically. They are the exact opposite of what Jesus is calling us to here. Thus, as Christians, we must guard against unloving anger and angry attitudes and actions and posts. Yes, we should. I'm not saying, let's just not say anything. Yes, we should make strong, compelling arguments. But don't do so against people. Do so against positions. As people of the author and the sustainer of life, we, yes, we must vote for policies that sustain life, but we also must engage in our political discourse in a way that sustains life. And yet this will never be easy. 
And that's why we have to consider the motivations to love that Jesus gives us in verses 35 and 36. Motivations to love. Jesus reviews his call to radical love. In verse 35, he reiterates what he says. Love your enemies, do them good, and lend hoping for nothing. And then he says, first, your reward will be full. I don't think there's any way to continue living this type of radical love if we think that this life is all there is. If you think when I die, it's done, well, then why would you ever love your enemy? It's not going to do you any good. You will end up where Christopher Hitchens was, and that is saying this is an immoral command. It's evil to love those who are evil. And yet, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if one day we will stand and fall before the creator and judge, then we want his judgment. And his judgment is that if we love our enemies, he is going to reward us. And so when you do good to those who hate you, he is counting up, storing up treasures in heaven for you. And that, that's not all. Jesus gives another motivation, I would argue a stronger one. He says, second, you will be sons of the Most High, for he also is kind to the ungrateful in evil. So is Jesus saying by this type of love, you will become sons of the Most High? Well, I think that would fly in the face of everything he's been saying. It also ignores the context. Jesus here, if we back up, he's talking to disciples. These are people who already know him, people who are already following him, and he's saying, this is how you live as a disciple of mine, not this is how you become a disciple of mine. He's saying this is how you'll be revealed to be sons of the Most High. You've probably heard these expressions, like father, like son. They have a strong family resemblance. Oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, all these things are noting that there are actions, there's attitudes, there's body faces, there's body types that go in family lines, that are passed down. In fact, it's impossible to avoid them. And we love to point them out. If you've known someone a long time, you go, oh, your eyes are just like your mother's. Oh, I remember when your dad was a little boy and he acted just like that. What is Jesus saying? Look, we act like our family members. We act like our father. And Jesus applied this spiritually. Once he was in a dispute with the Pharisees and they were lying. And he said, you're just like your father, the devil. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you love your enemies, then you'll be showing that you're like your father in heaven. You will be showing whose father you are. God's family, his children are revealed by acting like their father and being kind to the ungrateful and evil. And so we have to ask, what family resemblance are we showing? If we reflected on our online activity, our words and our mental thoughts of those who disagree with us politically, whose family are we resembling? The father in heaven or the father, the devil? Now we have to note something. If you look up the Greek word for evil, you'll find it actually means evil. Jesus did not believe in the innate goodness of man. Jesus said and taught people are evil. Evil means evil. Jesus' consistent teaching was that we humans have rebelled against God and we're enemies of God and are evil. 
Now, the point is not that we are as wicked as we can be. We could be much worse than we are. But the point is that in each one of us is a bent to go our own way, not to submit to God. And Jesus is clear that is evil. And yet, the very fact that we are evil shows his love. For it's even while we were still enemies that he died for us. He didn't wait till we said, you know what, we've been really rebelling against the creator a long time. We should, we should stop this. This is not a good idea. You know what, okay, we're going to start doing stuff, and then maybe God will do something. No, even while we were yet enemies, he loved us. And that is the same type of love which he now calls us to emulate. And this is really important because people will commonly say, well, look, I don't really believe that Jesus was the son of God and he came to die for our sins, but we need to follow Jesus' teachings here. And while that's often said, I don't think it's going to last. Again, we'll end up with where Hitchens was, that this is immoral morals. Why? Because if we're only talking about love, and we mean by that loving those who love you, well, you don't need anything supernatural to have that type of love. Barney can inspire you to love those who love you. But if we're going to have the type of love that says, you just completely lied about me, you mischaracterized me, you said all these things about me that are wrong, you want to take away my rights, and yet I'm going to do good to you. That takes something outside of us. That takes a supernatural love welling up in us and we will only do that if we realize that's the type of love god has had for us it's only as we recognize that we are evil deserving his wrath and yet he took that wrath off us and put it on his son that we will then be motivated to extend this love to others and i think here what jesus is telling us is primarily a declaration of what God is like. God loves his enemies. God does good to those who hate him. God is kind to the ungrateful. God doesn't say, well, pff, see if I send another rain. How many people thank me after that last rain? Ungrateful jerks. He continues to show kindness to us, even though we are ungrateful. And then Jesus says, look, we get the immense privilege of reflecting that being that love to this world. Could there be any greater motivation than being a picture of God to the world? You often say, because it's true, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You hear someone sing a great song, and you want to go pick up that karaoke mic and sing. You may not be very good, but hey, you want to imitate them. You watch a karate movie with your kids, and the next week there are karate chopping everything in sight. They thought it was cool, so they want to imitate it. We see the almighty, eternal, completely self-sufficient God of the universe send his son to die for rebels, and then we want to do the same. We want to love those who hate us. Now, this is a really hard message because this is really counter to me. And we often really hear this as a beat-down sermon. Ugh. Yep, there's another sermon. Completely failed on that one. All right, do it this week. I'm going to go out. I'm going to love my enemies. Do it. You go home, pick up your phone, and you read an article. Oh, an article about rioting or police brutality. How we should have socialism or how capitalism is the best thing ever. How you should support Trump 
or how you should support Biden. And you begin to see the anger. You think, how could they post that? They claim to be a Christian, and they say I should vote for them. Don't they know X, Y, and Z? I can't believe they'd even say they're a Christian. And we begin to get angry. And we begin to look down and think in contempt with others. We don't want to show love, and I don't want to either. And if you leave here striving to love others in your own power, you'll never do it. We have to begin with the confession, I am the enemy of God, and he and his love reach out to me. I have no desire to love someone who crosses me, and only God's empowering me to love them is what will enable me to do the opposite. It's only as we delight and adore God's love for us as his enemies that we get the motivation to have a love that is supernatural, his love that he showed us. As we love our enemies, we will honor God by reflecting him, and we'll also be blessed by it. There are numerous ways this can happen, but let me share a couple from the life of Abraham Lincoln. If we can respond to attacks not with hate but love, sometimes we can just laugh. Abraham Lincoln was once accused in a debate of being two-faced. And he replied, well, if I had two faces, would I be wearing this one? At times, General Grant's excessive drinking of whiskey, or at least the perception of that, caused Lincoln's age to urge him, you've got to get rid of General Grant. He is such a drunk. And Lincoln replied, I wish that some of you would tell me the brand of whiskey that Grant drinks. I'd like to send a barrel to all of my generals. You know, he could... Take the attacks and laugh and move on. I don't have to return every attack with attack. But lastly, there's an interesting tale of Lincoln, the one that goes earlier in his career. You may know he grew up in Illinois and he was a lawyer, and there a case came up that was going to be tried in Chicago. The team of lawyers was from Washington, D.C., but they wanted someone who knew Chicago law, so they put Lincoln on retainer. So he worked all summer feverishly. He wrote up a plan. He'd come up with closing arguments. And the day before the court trial came, and they didn't even tell him, it got moved to Cincinnati. Well, he found out, so he went to Cincinnati. And when he got there, this is what one of the lawyers said. He said, I'm not going to associate with such a damn gawky, long-armed ape as that. He continued by telling the other lawyers that Lincoln was a lanky creature from Illinois wearing a dirty linen duster for a coat and the back of which perspiration had splotched with wide stains that resembled a map of the continent. As the week went on, the lawyers would not let Lincoln sit with them at their lawyer's bench. When the judge invited lawyers from both sides to his house for dinner, Lincoln was not invited. When it got time for the closing arguments, they never even opened Lincoln's envelope. They didn't read a single thing he said. Well, that's the type of thing that bitter people hang on to. Oh, they remember, and I'm going to get them back. Well, one day Lincoln had his chance because the man who said those harsh things was standing before him. You know what Lincoln did? He made him his secretary of war. He made Edward Stanton, he gave him the position of secretary of war, and Stanton later said that he came to respect and love Lincoln more than any other person outside of his immediate family. You know, Stanton played a decisive role, though imperfectly, in helping the Union win the war. Lincoln's ability to return good with evil, to love his enemy, to turn the other cheek, helped bring freedom to four million black.
loving your enemies will be a blessing to you and others. But more than that, it will glorify God as you are a picture of him to this world. And any returning of evil, whether it's Lincoln or us, is a pale reflection of Jesus' love for us. For he didn't just merely forgive some nasty criticisms. He died so that he might show his love. We are pale imitations of God's love. But that's not a problem because the goal is not for people to applause us. It's for them to praise and adore God. So may we gaze at Christ and his perfect love. And as we gaze at that, may we be compelled to go out and love our enemies, even our political ones. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are a polarized people in me, and I'm sure in many in here, we have anger that boils up inside as we hear and read what people say and want to do with our country. And yet, Lord, may we be people of life in our arguments and in our attitudes. Lord, would you work a revival in us and our nation that we could love one another? Lord, we do ask that you would restore and give justice to this nation. Lord, would you help us to be your hands and feet in all of these things? In your son's name we pray. Amen.